Welcome to Farming the Depths of Eternal, a constructed podcast all about brewing. Each episode, we do a deep dive on a card and brew some decks around it and see what others in the community have uh, brewed with these cards too, uh, and then see how far we can take it. I'm Patrick, or Patamaru Online, and this week, uh, I'm a straights back again from uh, WSG to talk about our card this week, which is uh, once again from the uh, newest mini set. And it is Talir Headmistress. Um, so thank you for coming on, I'm Straight. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, third time. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. Uh, and you you had, a, I think, a busy weekend. Uh, we just had the exp- er, yeah, expedition open here, and it seemed like you did uh, pretty well for yourself. Yeah, I, uh, I managed to get into the, the top four. Um, I was, I think, the closest to taking out the Juggernaut, who is Alex Fiero. Um, it was pretty exciting games two and three in the top four. Uh, both of us got down to one life for games two and games three. So it was uh, pretty uh, pretty cool. And uh, got to see uh, my friend Apple Chips uh, get qualified for Worlds, which was uh, fantastic as well. So all in all, it was a great weekend. Yeah, and I, I guess because you got top four, you're halfway qualified, right? Yes. So uh, that's that's pretty exciting. Um, so what deck did you bring to, to the Open? Um, so I did a couple different runs. For the first run, I did Creation Tokens, which is a deck that I came up with. Um, and it was using uh, Scoundrel, uh, the unit that uh, gives deadly to attacking units. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that deck was, of course, using Creation Project um, and Grumbo and, and token-type effects together with taunt units and little units that you'd like to attack, and then Scoundrel um, to to kind of make the trades very favorable to you. Um, so my first run, I got a little unlucky. I felt like we didn't manage to get there. Oh, with that deck, and then for my second run, I took uh, Menace, which was uh, kind of the majority of the rest of the team decided to bring. And uh, I went 13, I think. Yeah, 13 uh, and 2 with that. So uh, that's what we qualified with for day 2. Cool. So it was this kind of like a... a- it felt like a, a lot of people ended up taking Menace, but in in some sense, it felt a little out of nowhere uh, from my perspective. Is this a mm-hmm. deck that people have been working on a lot? Had people been playing it on ladder, or was it more of like a, a secret team deck? Um, I think it had been played on ladder. Um, maybe not as pervasively. Um around and i think as we were getting closer to the tournament you know maybe we were testing with each other and not as much um on ladder and we were trying different different decks it's possible that it just outperformed the other decks and that's why it made up 30 percent of the day two being the highest kind of deck representation there mm-hmm. um, so i don't i don't know that you know the overall numbers for day one that's something that dwd i'm sure has but um but it did end up doing really well. I, I think ultimately it, it probably was the best deck um, in the format. And I think post balance changes and post some additional cards that got printed, it's it's uh, 
it's definitely um, the best deck at this point in Expedition. Right. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, like before the tournament, there was sort of a lot of talk about whether Creation Project would be as dominant in Expedition as it was in, in the Throne Open. And that seemed to, at least based on the open results, not be true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it did end up being the case. I think it just doesn't have as many of the additional powerful cards um, that Throne kind of brings to the table. And, uh, you know, the, the creation token deck that, that I made was, was quite good. Um, it did get me into, you know, top down of ladder. It was definitely a, a serious con- consideration for other teammates. Uh, PTK Tempo uh, day two with that deck. Um, so if anybody wants to find it, they they, they can find that um, his name in the list for uh, folks who made day two. They can see it. But uh, ultimately, I think lots of people playing hate cards. Uh, lots of people kind of expecting it, kind of going back to that what we were chatting about the last week where you know um it's it's probably it is a relic that you know if it stays in play you probably end up winning the game but everybody's going to come prepared for it Mm -hmm. so so do you think because i was that's what i was kind of going to ask you about is you know in our last episode you kind of talked about how you felt like creation project was too warping even in expedition is do you feel like that's what happened? Is that expert, or it still is was too powerful, and maybe could have, been, like, just like in a vacuum, could be the the best deck, except for the fact that it was so well known and so gun for that that's what held it down. Or do you think just like the menace deck? I mean, I I don't know if this is even a good way to talk about decks, but like, is mm-hmm. just objectively more powerful. Or was it that since creation was more hated, uh, the menace deck was able to be, you know, be more powerful in the context of this? No, that's a good question. I so I think there's always it's rarely it's pretty rare that you get to find a deck and say that this is just objectively better than every other deck. Um, So, for example, the menace deck probably has a poor matchup into the uh, hero decks. Um, but there aren't really that many hero decks. So there, there is a little bit of a rock, paper, scissors thing going on. Um, there are, there were a few different ways of doing the creation deck. Some people were trying out the musket plus unleash cards. And I think that probably did a little bit better and it was more, it was more played than the, the deck that kind of we came with creation wise which was the token deck i think that one was uh, solely us uh or our team members that 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 played that kind of deck um so that was a little bit more out of left field but so depending on the build i'd say sometimes it has a 50 50 matchup sometimes it has a little bit favorable but i think the menace was overall more well-rounded i think something that it did better than some other decks was um apply um a lot of pressure you you had access to not access to but 
you had the tempo advantage in a lot of situations um, and you could use that uh, pretty effectively. Then cards like Pack plus Overwhelm or Flying were were very, very strong. Pack is a pretty much the, the main reason that deck was what it was is I think on the back of of um, Direwood Pack. Yeah. And then um, the other question I had with the deck is, do you think it is like it? I didn't wasn't able to watch all the coverage, but it felt like the mono fire and the mono justice or like justice decks did seem to be okay into menace. Was that just like how it happened to be like on camera or or based on your testing? Do you have any insight into that? I think. The fire deck is probably worse into Menace uh, because uh, the Menace deck has access to Lethrag Gambit, mm-hmm. which makes it a little bit difficult for the fire deck to be able to deal with it. I think the Justice deck does have a, a decent matchup into it. It's probably about 50-50. Um, but I think that, for example, Alex Fiora's deck, just being Ricano, was just in my opinion, strictly better than just the Mono Justice. Mm-hmm. We give access to some more powerful cards um, overall. I didn't I didn't necessarily think that Mono Justice was worth just, uh, you know, restricting yourself in, in that manner. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, it did do well, though. Top four as well. Yes, it did. And... Uh... Yeah, I and I guess I'm not specifically talking. I you know I said mono justice, but I was kind of just thinking about like justice as your sort of core cards or core mm-hmm. package. So you know, in, in that sense, Alex Fierro's deck kind of fits into that mold because it's playing those like sort of core strong justice cards. Though I guess with yeah, Give I... Chase, I don't know if uh, like if Alex Fierro. I don't remember if he was playing a. Magnaventurus or anything like that. Yeah, he was. Um, I think that was the only non-gift chaseable card, if I remember right off the top of my head. It was an interesting matchup. Uh, we had not tested that matchup in particular, so it it kind of it was something that you know I had to evaluate on, in the moment. Uh, I was surprised at how how little I basically had to rely on Felnadept. Um, the entirety of day two. And I think that is more of a benefit of having open deck lists. Then you, you can assign kind of different values on the cards. Um, Felnadept is something that ended up being really good in one matchup because they didn't have a lot of ways of interacting with it. But for most most matchups, I didn't even bother putting any investment on like developing that card and trying to get, get it to, to hit the opponent to get card advantage. If anything, I wanted to keep my chis away weapon, for example, for pack or something like that to give overwhelm to a unit that mattered for pushing extra damage. Um, but but it um, it really the menace deck is is a it has a, a really good tempo advantage. I feel like against a lot of the decks, so it's able to get out of the gates very quickly, just like Mono Red can. But then it has a lot more standing power being able to get over the finish line having a lot more interaction you have life gain um lethra gambit was generally like a fantastic card yeah i 
Can we talk more about that card? Eight just like yeah. is flabbergasting to me that this is <laughs> a playable card. I just like yeah. Um. So like, what's what's so good about it in this current format? Uh, for those who don't know what the card is, it is a. Uh, two and uh film colors and it says it's a fast spell stun an enemy unit and deal three damage to the enemy player left right gambit has life steal if there's an attacking enemy unit yes uh so why so it makes it very very difficult for your opponent to try to race with you um it it also is a great way of dealing with the relic weapons Mm. And dealing with the opponent's attack for the turn. Um, it, it's very difficult to play around. You just have to play into it every time. Um, so it's not something, it's not a removal spell, but it is a really huge tempo swing. So if it's able to stop, let's say, an opponent's Phoenix, it's saved you six life from that attack. It's gained you an additional three, so you've gained nine life, and you do three damage to them. So you just had a 12-point life swing. You've disabled the opponent's unit for two turns, um, and it's 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 pretty backbreaking in, in those situations. Right. It it just like doesn't read to me as a two-cost effect. I get like like the menace deck. You guys don't play perma for us, right? Right. And so, like, obviously permafrost is not fast, but, like, mm -hmm. it's just, like, for one, permanently deals with something. That's, I think that's the thing that I'm, like, that I have trouble getting my brain around. Like, or, like, Magna Ventress. You just, like, do this for four and get, <laughs> and attack with, like, a million, million endurance unit. Well, I mean, speaking with Magna Ventress, you could, for example, Lethray Gambit timed correctly, you could take away the armor so that the Magna Ventress couldn't attack you for that much. Um, it would be able to remove flyers um, after your opponent play them. So you, you leave two power up at the end of their turn, you deal with the the blocker, let's say, and you're able to then use up all your power your turn. Permafrost was something I think that got tested quite a bit in different decks. Uh, Spiff in particular was trying it out. The problem with a card like that is it's not going to be permanent. There are enough ways to give endurance. There are enough ways to break that effect because um, barbarians are in the format and people are playing that uh, because of uh, because of project. So that effect, the permafrost effect, isn't as permanent as it comes across. So with that in mind, um, you can kind of evaluate both in a very similar manner. And the fact that one is a trick really pushes it over the top. It allows it allows you to be able to have a more a lot more decision uh, decisions in um, how you cast it, when you cast it. And you can try to trick your opponent into different situations. Um, there was a game when I was playing against the Manus Mirror uh, against uh, Notorious GHP. And I remember that I was on the board so far ahead 
but I realized that he had Lethrite Gambit, and all of a sudden, I just had to... I kind of had to leave all my units back. Um, and I couldn't attack anymore because of that uh, situation. If it was a permafrost, then... You know, one of my units would be out of commission, but it would be easier to do the math in the situation. You So you don't know what your opponent is kind of hiding from you. There's there's those kinds of elements as well that make it um, a little bit stronger. But the damage really helps as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is it is a surprising card. Uh, I think the Overmaster um, it came into the whole discussion, I think, hating that card. And then... Um, as he started playing it, it uh, he ended up loving it uh, as well. So I think I think you're not alone to be skeptical of it, um, that kind of effect. But it, it does end up being uh, really really good. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just like it's interesting to me because it's like I I do kind of like cards like it where it's just like a lot of little pieces. Yeah, the whole is better than the sum of its parts, you know, because like you you think of like the three damage lifesteal swing and you're like, well, that's like Orn Taxation, which is a totally unplayable card. And then like yep. two power to just like stun a unit. Also, you know, not not a great effect, but then you just like, uh, you know, you add these all together and you, you have, uh, I guess, an interesting card. Um, I, I yeah, versatility do- adds a lot of value. Yes. All right. And then uh, right, last thing I wanted to ask you kind of as a surprise question here that wasn't in the show notes until a few moments ago um, before we get into our card this week is, you know, we did have these balance changes uh, that were announced yesterday and came into effect today. And uh, I just was wondering if you had any uh, any of these buffs or anything are you excited about trying anything in uh, constructed from any of these buffs, or do you think they're just mostly draft and expedition focused? Or I guess you or an expedition, you know, or the, do you feel like they're just mostly draft uh, focused uh, changes? Um, that's a good question. So collection rounds is the one that stands out immediately as being. I think that card is going to be constructed playable. Um, I was surprised to see it getting buffed. It, let's say, was decent enough already in in um, in draft. It's now going to be uh, even better than decent. Um, but I, I do think that there is a place for it in constructed. I think that's the kind of the obvious one. Yeah, friends' insight being fast is also kind of interesting. It was already being played and constructed. I'm not sure how big of a difference that would make necessarily, but it's just a positive. I mean, I agree with uh, calling uh, both of those out. You know, the, Bren's Insight is interesting because the, the main deck it's seen in right now is um, is Katra, I think, where maybe the, the fast speed doesn't necessarily help per se because it's a pretty linear deck and that deck's not really playing you know send an agent or anything main deck um yeah some versions are it's possible that they would want to keep up their power to to see if they they want to play removal spell or or play brunson side i could i could see that right being relevant 
Yeah, um, but I, I do think, yeah, because the fact that there are some interesting, you know, two two cost fast removal spells, you know, makes it interesting. So you can kind of have that flexibility. And yeah, collection rounds really interesting buff because there's like, you know, no fast speed card that's, you know, really close to that rate, I feel like, unless I'm forgetting yeah. something. I, I think you're right. It's I think it's really, really good. Yeah. Um Yeah, I think I think there's a lot of different angles that you can use that. There's a lot of different token type decks in um in constructed. There's also the fact that it has a taunt on it, so it can be used with um moon. Um kind of to trick your opponent to you you can make your tokens on the end of turn three, then play Moon to give them deadly as well, and you're attacking with two ta deadly taunt units. I think there's a lot of different applications that that could be a relevant card. Cool. And I think there's two, two more cards in that list that I think could see some play. Um, one is Full Tilt, because it has a five cost, kind of going back to the the conversations that we've been having over the, the past couple of episodes that I think you always have to evaluate cards that have a particular cost that is associated to them in conjunction with the market spells that are able to get you that cost. So it costs five. So it is a viable uh, sweeper card that you can grab off of Crack crack the Earth. So that gives it a potential of, of being, being played. Um, and then the last card... And it's more of a, a brewery kind of card as binding agreement. Um, I have been trying to see what I can do with that card. So I'm not sure if other people are going to play it, but I've been trying to make it work. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. And binding agreement, for those who uh, might not know, is used to be eight cost. Now it's a six cost time time. Uh, put your hand on the bottom of your deck, draw cards until you draw two non-power cards with the same cost. So it yeah. seems like it's asking you to have a lot of variable costs in your deck, and then hopefully... Are you doing anything besides just drawing a lot of cards, or are you trying to play like revenge units, or... I So I think when you read an effect like that... Um... The my the way my mind works is like how do I exploit the specifics of what it's what it's doing? So we we've seen a few combo decks in Eternal that run fifty power, for example. Well a card like this is going to draw into your non-power cards a hundred percent of the time. So is there something that you can do with that where you can construct your construct your deck in a way where you can draw like a huge amount of cards. And if you do, then what do you do with that? Um, I was also trying it in the Praxis uh, Storm combo or Praxis Influence combo where it's using... Um, let see if I can get the name of everything correct here. Rebuild. Using Rebuild, exactly. Um, and then I was playing around with kind of the numbers to see how I could maximize... The cards that you would draw um, off of it, it, you know, it's 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 had its ups and downs. I think there's still more that I'd like to play around with it to see what I can do with the, the card. But I I could see it 
I could see an effect like that because it, it's not a linear draw amount of cards. You kind of have the ability to exploit it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, those are all cards to keep in mind uh, as as we go forward here. Um, so yeah, let's get. Um, oh yeah, one last thing. I did want to shout out uh, Trogdor. Uh, took uh, the list that we talked about in our last episode, um, the Olin um, uh, Rakano list, and uh, made uh, one change. I, I think they the big change is the only change they did was they took out the uh, Dasher and put in uh, West, uh, the promo from a couple weeks ago, the the mm-hmm. one three J- Justice Justice uh, card. And uh, made it to day two with the deck, and then uh, unfortunately they were they were on camera for for the first round, and it was against a mono fire deck that um, kind of beat them up a little bit. Uh, it's not a great matchup. Uh, they were saying they had found, and uh, I think they also got a little bit unlucky um, with their draws and their opponent's draws. But it's pretty cool to see that list uh, make it to day two. No, definitely. Congrats to Trogdor uh, burninating the uh, the village with that deck. Cool. So uh, yeah, let's get into our our card here. So our card this week that we're talking about is a uh, Talir Headmistress, which is the six time time six six uh, with the abilities uh, charge plus two maximum power. And when Hale- when Talir hits the enemy player, replenish your power. I I picked the card this week, and I just I always like trying to figure out how good like a big dumb idiot has to be to be able to be <laughs> played in a competitive deck. And wondering if like Talir Headmistress crossed that threshold or not. And so I just kind of wanted to talk about it and look at some decks. And uh, see what see what we thought about this card. Um, any uh, first impressions with Talir? Yeah. Um, well, charge is a good ability for big dumb idiots to have because, generally speaking, they are slow cards. So being able to attack right away at a at a surprise element really does help. Um, but this card has a hidden hidden text on it. I think. Um, not only does it have charge, but it basically has taunt. It uh, it pretty much forces your opponent to opponent's unit to block it. So, in a way, you can also take advantage of that. So, you can set up situations where they're da- damned if they do, damned if they don't. Um, where if they if they don't block, all of a sudden you instantaneously ramp yourself from six power to eight power, which allows you to to be able to do certain things, which I'm sure we'll talk about as we go through the deck lists. Um, but it, it also potentially makes them trade a unit that they would otherwise not want to trade to kind of prevent you from being able to to do that. Right, exactly. And I think that's one of the interesting things about Talir for me is it's sort of just like, has a lot of unique abilities on it like charge which is like not a super unique ability but there are actually very few big time cards that have charge 
and um you know Eveline being smaller than Talir but like sort of close to the top of top of the curve uh for that um and then the two max power like not many cards give two maximum power you know there mm -hmm. are a few time cards that do it there's like quartet maximizer the one one deadly for two that if you have a relic does it there's uh the there are the relics ancestral oasis eternity core uh there's Duskwalker, which is the one that gives you plus two if you have nightfall which is conditional then there's like a the relic gift of arcanum which gives you three and has some extra abilities but is doesn't have a six six charging body attached to it um yeah but then of course like on the other hand like two maximum power is also slightly less exciting when you're already at six power in, in some no that's sense. very true yeah um so unless you have something to do with that additional power um right if you're not taking advantage of that it might as well not even have it on the card um yeah. that's an important thing to to consider when when trying to build with this card i think those kinds of effects in general adding two additional maximum power um it, it's it, they're pretty strong there's a detriment for any deck being a kind of a ramp deck where you need to draw everything in a particular order so that you can maximize the advantage that you will get from it. The thing that I think puts Talir on a different um, on a different level than some of the these other cards is that not only does it give you plus two to maximum power, but because of its third effect, it's it's able to be a ritual, not just you know wasting your turn to get an advantage, like to to ramp yourself to get an advantage for your next turn, you can get that advantage the very same turn, which I think makes it stand out from the other uh, effects that we have listed here. Uh, like Quartet Maximizer, for example, in order for you to be able to take advantage of the plus two power, you, you kind of need to start with a one-cost relic. That kind of shoe, shoehorns you into very few different options uh, right now, at least. Mm -hmm. um, Eternity Core and Ancestral Oasis, they've both seen decent amount of play in um, uh, Combray Relics, for example, depending on the different builds. Um, the other two, not as much. And I think like, Gift of Arcanum has the same kind of um, slightly detrimental effect that, you know, it already costs six. What are you going to do with the extra? Is there something that you can really take advantage of? Yes. And then, uh, you know, with the two maximum power and this costing six, you know, one of the first things that came to my mind is what you talked about in uh, the last episode with Olene about where, you know, because Olene also could be a ramp card. So you were like, oh, what are the fours and fives? Mm -hmm. And so like Talir, I feel like makes me jump to like, what are the eights? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, I, I feel like the, the best date that I can think of is Azendel, but then you immediately think maybe I should just be playing Katra. So I, I wasn't sure like that was actually the best way to think about it. 
I think, well, I think it's really important to consider breakpoints. That's kind of, I think that that is the conversation around, um, I think that's what, in essence, what you're saying is, is important is it's what breakpoints does this allow you to reach? So it gets you from six to eight. What can you do with that eight power? Can you do two four drops? Can you do, um, so for example, are there unleashed uh, cards that have a four cost because you would be able to play two of those copies? Um, what eight drop cards are there around that I that that are particularly good? You mentioned one with Azendel. Um There, I think there is another uh, with um, the relic weapon, the Justice one, Stormhold plating. Um, I think that's another very important one. Um, it allows you to kind of play it on turn six. That is a very powerful effect to have on turn six. Yes. Um, Tough influence, but very powerful. Boundless Knowledge is an excellent, excellent card. Uh, so if Talir is in play for a turn, you're able to attack uh, without having depleted any of your power for the turn. And if your opponent decides they're not blocking, partially because it allows you to kind of sneak that by, they're like, well, you know, they're attacking. They haven't spent their power, so there's I, I maybe less punished for not blocking here. But then you're able to, at fast speed, draw cards, then undeplete all your power again, draw more cards. So you end up getting, you're, you are able to get a, a, a huge amount of advantage from, from that. Mm-hmm. Cool. And then the final ability, the replenish power, you know, this has shown up a couple times on some cards. Uh, there's a few cards that just like re let you replenish one or two power. Um, then there are cards like uh, a very classic card that hasn't been around for a while, Temporal Distortion, which replenishes your power uh, each turn um, and lets you play uh, all your spells as fast spells. There's fast speed, yeah. Yep. There's Sodi the Metamorph, which is the Elysian card that if you muster, uh, good luck remembering what that does. Um, <laughs> it replenishes your power. And then um, I think a card that's pretty similar to Talir in some ways, or has shades of Talir, is a Waystone Titan, which is a, a fire card that's a 5-7 with charge. And it says when it hits the enemy player, uh, you uh, get plus six power this turn. Yes, those, those are both quite similar uh, effects. I think Talir is kind of uh, above all of those because she does both increasing your maximum power and replenishing it. Um, and uh, muster <laughs> is not something that, that we have not seen uh, for, for a while. Uh, so if you play an attachment and a spell the same turn, you, you meet the muster requirements and then it triggers that effect uh, once per card. Um, and that's that Sodi had seen some play as well. Um, I think the interesting part with Talir is, well, on the one hand, she doesn't have Overwhelm, so it's, it's relatively difficult to trigger that replenish your power clause. But if you found a way to give it Overwhelm, then it becomes significantly easier. If you have units that say when you play a unit, it deals damage to the opponent, then that also is another way of... Um, 
replenishing power. So I think, you know, there's there's some there are other ways of hitting your opponent with these cards that is not directly by attacking them. Uh, I know that it's unlikely that you have, you know, a, a Kairos in play, but that's another example. If you have a Kairos in play and you play a Talir, that would hit the opponent. It would replenish back your power. Um, so there's there are potential combo elements that you could think about kind of around that ability. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, I, I guess that, that kind of just, again, at a high level, as a, a high level concept or question is like, because the replenish your power uh, aspect of Talir is, is conditional on her hitting the opponent. Like, how hard are you going into this? You know, we talked about playing like eight cost cards or, you know, unleashed four cost cards with the hope that you hit that break point because you played Talir. Um, but it's also, you, you, I, I mean, I guess there, there is a chance that even if you don't hit the opponent, she survives and you still have eight mm -hmm. power. But like, I guess, you know, like what I said, how how hard are we going into that ability? It would have to be not very hard, I would say, unless you have a very reliable way of having to Leer hit the opponent and you want to make this into more of a combo deck where you have some effect, like um, it's an iceberg scatter shot. So unless you have kind of an effect like that and you know that that that's a combo that you're trying to make, and therefore, you want to commit a lot of resources into that. You, chances are, you're not you're not going to be hitting your opponent and replenishing your power very often. And I think that's why another reason why I'm saying that the card has taunt. In essence, <laughs> it like forces your opponent to block, um, or suffer the consequences. So you're probably going to pick eight cost cards that you don't rely on to lear hitting in order for them to be relevant. If um, if you are relying on that, then you're probably not. You're, it's not going to happen as often as you'd like, and you'd be pretty disappointed. But being able to have some kind of way to punish your opponent for not blocking it is probably also an important part of playing the card. Um, I think it wouldn't be worth playing Talir if you did not have um, some kind of effect uh, to do with all that power that you're gaining, either use it up for unleash because it's kind of modular um or have an eight drop or have some kind of important breakpoint where you're able to go to the market um and play a card from your market that has some kind of beneficial effect after you attack mm -hmm. all right cool so uh let's get into some decks so uh you know the first thing i did is i went to eternal war cry and looked up and there were a few a couple different decks that made the uh, expedition open here. And uh, one of the first I wanted to talk to was played by uh, John K. Kez. And this deck is very similar to the deck that I've been uh, uh, watching you and a bunch of people on your team play. So I thought I wanted to start with this because I feel like it's a pretty interesting place to... It's a, it's a creation project deck. So it's a FTJ deck. And it has Talir in it. And so uh, I, it's a pretty interesting deck. So I kind of wanted to talk about it. Yeah, this is one of 
the two different ways that I think that creation could be built in order to um, for for expedition. So these are both the two different kinds of decks that we were testing. Uh, and the reason this looks familiar is because this is Apple Chips's uh, creation deck, uh, like big creation as we were calling it. Um, Spiff had his own version. We kind of tried the different approaches. I think ultimately we preferred Chips, uh, Apple Chips's uh, version as well. So this is, I think, pretty much card for card what we were testing that uh, John uh, John played, and John is on the same team as Apple Chips on TIL. The cards in the deck are, it has uh, four all-nighter, which is the new uh, one-cost removal spell, or play an apprentice mage. It has four dinosaur nest, four miner's musket, four tinker unionist, uh, four collision course, which is the Rakano inscribe card, four Cambrai adept, uh, two draconic looting, four parliament elders, uh, four creation project, four Dunehill clan, four Krogar burdened hero, and f- four Talir headmistress, and four Stormhold plating. Yeah. Um, so there's two different elements to the deck that I think Talir uh, can help advance. Uh, one is that this deck is playing a lot of unleashed effects, predominantly because it's also playing a musket. Uh, and the interaction between those two types of cards is is very, very strong. But also Talir allows you to... Um, to generate a lot of power and then take advantage of unleashed cards in an additional way. Um, and it has that same breakpoint that we were talking about where you play to leer into Stormhold plating if your opponent is either tapped out chooses or chooses not to block. And in essence, you could create situations with the stack, either leaving up all-nighter power, removing the blocker at end of turn, um, and then playing your to leer into Stormhold plating where you almost could immediately win the game uh, the turn you played the Talir. Yes, and then it also has the another sort of synergy we talked about with the Dune Hill clan being a four-cost unleash. Right. Um, yeah, one of the interesting things about this, again, and maybe this is just more throne focus, but, you know, like the, the sort of, the non-synergy of creation project and expensive cards. So if you play your creation project on three and then a clear is what gets warped, you're sort of stuck not sort of using every part of the buffalo for the creation project. And so what was the thought in going bigger with the creation project deck? You're, you're right. It- I think this deck was not as good of a creation project deck as the token. Um, but creation project was really strong. It It's even in those cases, all that meant was, you know, uh, you, you didn't draw a card one of the turns, but you could the next turn after that. Um, I think ultimately it didn't end up mattering too much, even though it was a slightly worse creation project deck because creation project really strong it was still a relic for your tinker unionist um it still was very a very very good in conjunction with dino nest uh with the parliament elders with all those unleashed cards that made 
a, a bunch of units. Uh, so even though it wasn't as good as it could be, it was still very good. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of what you ended up seeing with the creation project being put in many different kinds of shells and sometimes, you know, basically playing a film deck and then splashing creation project. Those kind of like four color, five color uh, decks that were out there as well. One thing I do want to mention about this deck too is Collision Course is a way to give to Lear Overwhelm, uh, which allowed you to be able to also take advantage of that effect in, a, in an additional kind of more unique way. Right. Yeah. No. That, that's that's pretty sweet. Cool. So then uh, the next deck I wanted to talk about is a Summoner Savant deck that uh, also made it to the. Uh, to day two and uh this one was by uh james nickel who made it to day two though someone else posted this deck on eternal war cry beforehand i wasn't familiar with you know the, the deck before but it does seem like a relatively straightforward kind of um summoner savant type deck where it's also trying to play miner's musket um to get a little bit of a of a of an advantage from that try to discount some key units. Um, so I can quickly go through the deck for everybody. So there's four All-Nighters, four Seek Powers, four Catalyze, four Miner's Musket, four Plunks, four Celestial Discovery, uh, which is the a Legion uh, three-cost draw two cards. And if you have relic, if you have two relics, then you get to draw two of the top four cards of your deck instead. Do some card, card filtering that way. Uh, we have four Sundane, four Summoner Savant, uh, four Elemental Fury, four Rivas, four Curiox All-Seeing, uh, two Talir, a Headmistress, and four Sashenkas. Yeah, I guess maybe my <laughs> my my thoughts with this deck are that or since I'm less used to the expedition card pool, where it feels like this is a more fair version of Savant than I'm used to seeing. You know, it doesn't have like dashers and the big units you can play in um, in expedition just aren't quite as impressive, and so it feels more like a fair version of Savant. Yeah. It doesn't, it's definitely not relying on that effect as much. Um, it's just saying that I'll just go ahead and develop it, and if you don't deal with it, I'll get that advantage. If you do deal with it, then maybe you're wasting your removal spell or my Savant. You're not going to have it for my Reva or my Curiox or my Talir. But it's not necessarily trying to put all its eggs in one basket. Um, like the uh, Summoner Savant deck that I. I um, was my submission last week for for uh, for the Olin build around right uh, challenge. Yeah, yeah, and then so, but that's I guess what I wonder is like, so is Talir just a big dumb idiot in this deck? Because it feels like it's not really using the different pieces of Talir. I think I think you're right to say that it's probably not trying to maximize Talir as much and likely why we only see two copies of it in the deck. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some interesting parts. Um, I suppose you, you 
you can ramp into Sushenka a turn early, and Sushenka is a pretty strong card. Uh, Curiox as well uh, would otherwise give you a pretty decent sizable debt, and Talir might be able to erase that debt more easily. And same for Sundane as well, um, contracting to draw cards. So maybe Celestial Discovery allows you to draw cards in the same turn and play play the cards, and same thing with Catalyze. So maybe it's trying to utilize the additional power that way because you could actually use some some of that power to draw cards, filter cards. Uh, Celestial Discovery is also a fast spell, so maybe you're attacking, hiding hiding from your opponent the fact that you can take advantage of of that extra power if they don't block, and then you kind of sneak in maybe a couple of Celestial Discoveries, and you get an extra six power for that turn without them necessarily expecting it. So I think you're right that it doesn't, it's not focusing on taking advantage, heavy advantage of uh, Talir, but um, but I think there are ways of of taking advantage of that additional power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then does this is this a good catalyzed deck? That's that's my other question when I I look at this deck. Um, good question. I think I think this deck is probably using catalyze as a draw spell more than um you know the double damage effect that being said however i think if you get a double damage elemental fury it can pretty much sweep the board pretty easily right um uh, same thing with reva that's a pretty impressive uh pretty impressive unit um and then maybe you make some formidable you know sindane type cards is it you know, taking full advantage of of the double damage, probably not, but it's a nice a nice bonus depending on what you draw off of it. Mm-hmm. So it's just the generic, generically okay card, but it, it you know I don't know. It's like tough influence for a three color deck. I don't know. It does. It this deck does have some pretty lofty influence requirement. It has a very even split of all the colors. And it has double influence requirements of all the colors as well. Um, so I would assume that playing this deck is is probably, you would find yourself kind of hunting for your influence requirements uh, the majority of the time. I haven't actually played this deck, but I, I definitely can appreciate the fact that I see four seek powers here. And I think that this would be very necessary. Um, I'm sad to not see some... Um, inscribe effects in addition to it because i think that it would make uh your life a little bit easier playing this deck as well right and uh are there good inscribe cards for this are there any good multicolor inscribe cards for this deck i think exodus comes to mind more than any other mm-hmm. um it doesn't necessarily fit exactly to the 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 plan of the deck, but I think it might be necessary. Um, it might be a necessary evil. It does also get around cards like Lethrite Gambit um, or Permafrost or something along those lines. Any kind of stun effects, which is a, a, a nice additional bonus. But most of the time, it's it's probably just an inscribed effect. Right. Yeah. No, I I I, I like that little kind of change. Cool. Um, so those were the the main expedition uh, decks that showed up. You know, there was also your 
uh, four faction summoner deck that we talked about last week. Um, that's again, sort of just, I think using Talir as, as a, a top end for, <laughs> because yeah. your, your Savantids aren't super great in expedition. Yeah, if and if if things go south, you're not able to do your savant stuff. It is a way of bridging that two cost gap. Get yourself to that eight power to play some of your other cards. Exactly, um, and you had more bigger cards than this last deck did. You know, you had your Bodian Rocks, your uh, Four Shashanka. You had four Wandering Hamlet in that deck. <clears throat> so yeah, had some bigger, bigger boom booms. Bigger dumb idiots, as uh, I said earlier. Yeah, so yes. so you could plausibly, you know, you know, maybe just start playing them from hand if your your savant plan didn't didn't work out. That was the idea behind it. Cool. And then um, I did find a couple throne decks. Um, one of them made it actually. Uh, Cassandrith had a, a mono time deck that made it to uh, top 32 of last month's uh, Throne Open. And this deck was kind of interesting to me uh, as a Talir Headmistress deck because um, it's Talir is is the top end of this deck. Um, so let's uh, I'll read it out here uh, again. <laughs> a lot of these uh, a lot of decks are starting with this right now. Uh, four All Nighter. Uh, there's four Logistics Expert. There's four Time Etchings. Four Twilight Hunt, four Alkid Ascending, four Devotee of the Sands, four Aurelian Merchants, four Tokaz, uh, Waystone Harvester, four Sabretooth Pride Leader, four Moonstone Vanguard, four World Bearer Behemoth, and four Talir Headmistress. And the market is a Kip Kickflip Monk, a Lumen Reclaimer. A Zenian Obelisk, a Nash Desert Prince, and a Passage of Eons. That I made the same observation that you made um, when I was looking at uh, a Cassandra stack here, in that Talir came across as it, it is the top of the curve. So you can think to yourself, what are we ramping to after Talir? Um, there are a couple of kind of ways to to try to take advantage of the additional power, uh, namely it's kind of going to the market, uh, I think, uh, after Talir hits, so that you're able to play, to just very quickly develop lots of different threats. Um, you can look at maybe Rune of Relocation as a potential um, way of uh, dumping a lot of power uh, into something. You're able to get a, a little bit of a tempo advantage by bouncing multiple things. Typically, Rune of Relocation, you'd think... Know, amplify five on this uh, on this power uh we didn't yeah we didn't bring the power up but it has this deck has four rune of relocations in it so rune of relocation is a depleted time power that has amplify five play teleport to return a unit uh, to the opponent's hand so let's say you attack with talir uh, you're able to generate 10 power or maybe you want to bounce two things to your opponent's hand and get an advantage that way because you know they they are not playing a way of generating that much power. So if they spent two turns developing two five cost things, then 
now you've all of a sudden almost time walked them back a couple turns. Um, it has an interesting interaction with Xenon Obelisk in that it immediately takes you from 6 to 8. So it, it gives you that additional uh, effect that the Xenon Obelisk has, uh, the card in, in your market um, has. So I, I, I did notice what the same thing that you that you mentioned. There's a lot of ways of getting a, a huge amount of power with this deck, but not not a lot of clear ways of how you would take advantage of that amount of power. Yeah. Yeah, one card that I, I think would be interesting is like Ixtol Champion of Grodov, which is, you know, the five cost uh, zero, zero, but you gain its, you know, attack and health is equal to your max power. You know, right. that you have that on your board it's a five five then a six six and then all of a sudden it's attacking as an eight eight because you just played talir um yeah that would be an interesting addition i i suspect that the majority of the time i i didn't end up uh seeing uh any of Katz's games but i i suspect the majority of the time that rune of relocation was the place where additional power was being uh dumped into especially because the world bearer behemoth when it attacks and it plays, um, you know, power from your from your deck, uh, there's a decently high chance that if it's attacked, you know, a couple times, it's going to end up hitting a rune of relocation. So, I I would suspect that a lot of the power got dumped into that. Right. Yeah, you can play two training camps with your time sketch. Yeah, time sketch is another example. You, I guess you you know. Typically, like, do you develop your cards? Do you pay four to make a two-one? Well, you know, what's a leer? Why not everything? <laughs> exactly. All right, cool. Yeah, this is kind of an interesting deck. I know Cass likes to play these sort of mono time or uh, Xenon sort of mid-rangey decks, and then this deck had, you you know, a big focus at the time of trying to beat. Uh, creation project uh you know had to tokaz had multiple ways to deal with relics and stuff pretty interesting take but again i I was just surprised because it just seems like i mean i guess i don't know if there is a better top end for mono time right now but again it, it felt like talir was you know just like it was almost used as reach in this mono time deck yeah, I'm surprised that maybe there wasn't, um, let's see if I can find it, Burden um, was was a card that intuitively I'd, I'd want to, I'd almost want to try and, you know, as a market card, uh, especially now that they've made Gordov's Burden. So they've bumped the costs up for that card. It was uh, previously like a, a staple, you know, crack the earth market card, uh, but now it's pretty expensive. However you know being able to to play it out of your market um with the additional power that you gain from talir to as an answer to something and then continue to be able to use the power that you get from talir over to draw many many cards intuitively seems to me like um something that that should be in the market uh, i'm sure i'm sure that casts you know, tested it. Maybe he didn't think it was necessary. It's also nice to get exalted from from that effect, especially with uh, Twilight Hunt and other killer effects, because that's a really really nice combination. With uh, with exalted, the way that that would work is one of your units with killer attacks 
it it dies it passes the killer to the next unit that unit can attack and if it dies it'll pass the the killer to the next unit and so on and so forth um so yeah i was i guess i was surprised i would automatically my brain went oh i'm 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 expecting to see gordov's burden in the market and then i didn't so i was surprised about that yes speaking of the market what do you think the lumen reclaimer is is doing in this market i suspect that both the kickflip monk and the lumen reclaimer are there for the same purpose and they are to deal with um just with katra katra or other type of uh, void based decks mm-hmm. yeah yeah so maybe cast just didn't feel he had the room had room so he you know he had two void hate pieces the xenon obelisk just like probably talking to that neat synergy you talked about with talir just auto turns it on nash to yeah. deal with you know flying decks and then passage a on to deal with any relic shenanigans or um if you're still alive and they have a creation project out you can passage is an interesting one there's a couple of different cards that have a kind of a similar effect i think if i were to try replacing one of the market cards it would likely be the an obelisk mm-hmm. for the gordos right cool so uh yeah, those were the decks uh, uh, that I found uh, uh, on Eternal Warcry, and you did brew up a deck. So, should we talk about that deck now? Sure. Um, so, so the deck I brewed um, kind of centers around the card uh, Divining Rod, and uh, I'm going to read it real quick for everybody. So, we have two Praxis Adepts, uh, four Devotee of Sands. A uh, four reactor forge, uh, four Aurelian supplier, which is our market access. It also has charge. Uh, four dragon forge, four east. No, wait. Aurelian supplier is not a market card. Aurelian supplier draws two cards. Uh, the east annex smugglers are market cards. So we have four of those. Uh, we have four molten feet, uh, four rivas, four of the namesake card divining rod, uh, four talir, four waystone titan. Four aspect of destruction, uh, and four Caleb, and then we have a couple of relevant power in there. I think the most relevant one is the four granite monument because it becomes a four-one unit uh, with charge while it's in your deck once you meet uh, five power, maximum power. And then for the market, we have one alluring ember, uh, one porcelain mask, one blade crafter, one bad news, and one praxis banner. Um, and the point of the deck is that uh, almost all the units have charge, so that when you play Divining Rod on one of your charge units, it uh, tries and plays um, as many charge units as you can from the top. Um, I think I think it's six cards. No, it's four. It's, rod. it's four so cards. sad. Four <laughs> cards. Um, yeah, it's it still ends up working well enough. Um, I think one of the cards that got cut in the recent version in comparison to one that we had before was um, let's see what I, what was it called? Uh, not Last Chance. Uh, Demand Death. So between uh, Reactor Forge and Demand Death, 
the deck did find itself uh did find dying to itself uh, a common enough occurrence that i called it suicide rod instead of the typical charge rod that you would uh get these uh, card these decks being named mm. but um but yeah so, I don't know what you think of the of the deck. Pick. Well, I, I guess the one my one question just is sort of a general overview of the deck is so what are you trying what are you trying to do with the deck? You know, you know, you're are you doing anything more than just trying to get a lot of charge units on board? I think um the main thing that you're doing is trying to get a lot of charge units on the board. Uh, the secondary thing that you're doing is you're you're kind of taking advantage of the Talir and Waystone Titan's effect if they hit the opponent. And the main way that you're doing that is because of Aspect of Destruction. It gives you an additional attack. It also un- replenishes your power again. Um, so as, as strange as this may sound, and, and again, if you have Demand Death, it kind of makes a little bit more sense here. So you know, maybe it's a card that needs to be added again, but you can attack, then play your divining rod afterwards. That can get you an a- that can get you into another aspect of destruction, or just playing it from your hand. So you can find yourself in a situation where, um, if you connect once, you can keep attacking and attacking and attacking until the opponent. Mm-hmm. For for each aspect of destruction that you play for each aspect of destruction yes okay and then you're also hoping to get some really good units with caleb uncrowned prince yeah so caleb when when he gets played um that's one of the ways you can you can do a lot of damage with with um with small red units in, in play so you end up having your you know uh Granite Waitstone tokens. Um, you have your Praxis Adept, where something something like that that has been in play that hasn't been doing much, and then you hit a Caleb off of your Divining Rod, or you just cast Caleb because of Reactor Forge, and you generate a bunch of uh, weapons on those units, and that can end up being pretty impactful. In fact, there it, it, I have have had it many times. That it happens that I, I randomly generate divining a divining rod on one of the charge units, and you end up also being able to um, to get that effect, um, which is kind of kind of humorous mm-hmm. as well. But generally speaking, you'd like to kill the opponent the same turn that Caleb comes down, right? And then, so speaking of killing people, so then. Why the choice of Riva over something like uh, Inferno Phoenix? It's it's the same kind of um, concept as the Talir and the Waystone Titan, in that it replenishes power. It gives you the ability to to you to try to to play as many things at the same time as possible. Uh, Phoenix just does a bunch of damage, but um, it it doesn't allow you to to do a lot of different things at the same time. So Reva, for example, you may be able to play Reva, do two damage to your opponent, attack, you replenished four power. Maybe you can use that power to play your dragon your uh dragon forge to go get your divining rod so that you can play it the next turn. And if you didn't even have a a power uh a power to play that turn, if you still were stuck on five, 
Well, Reva would be able to get you that additional two power, get you up to seven so that you can play Divining Rod. So synergy-wise, it does a lot more, I think, for the deck than something like Phoenix would. It's often not just, with these kinds of decks, it's often not just, you don't want to play something that does the most damage, but maybe is the most synergistic with your idea that you can extract as much out of it as possible. Mm-hmm. And then the the other sort of um, charging dragon that comes to mind is Solix, um, which is the five cost four four uh, Praxis dragon that um, when it hits the enemy unit, it gets killer, and then you could also uh, pay eight to give it plus four plus four. Yeah, and it silences the opponent's. Uh... The opponent's void as well, um, I believe. Um, it's it's a good unit. I think, I think it it can be a consideration, and maybe as a metagame choice if if you're running into a lot of like uh, void type decks, because mm-hmm. you know you can still be doing your plan and you can disrupt what the opponent is doing. I think there's a finite amount of space, and I think that's probably why you only see one of the options being played. Is it Reva? Is it Phoenix? Is it is it Solix? Is it the an older dragon, the the four four flyer that at the the opponent's turn you you would replenish three power? Um, that was, used to be in the deck originally, and I think that was a clear uh, Reva was a clear replacement for it. But that's also a contender. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has to do more with the amount of space that is in the deck, and then kind of what kind of utility. Mm-hmm. So, for example. I would rather play four Molten Feet than four additional dragons because Molten Feet can be a power, but it can also be a power that has charge and you it increases the, the hits for your for your um divining rod, for example. Right. Yeah, no, Molten Feet is pretty sweet. Uh, like I said, <laughs> I love it when there are when draft cards make it into a constructed deck. That's my kind of deck. Um, yeah. yeah, and then so the reactor forge is just to help you combo as quickly as possible, I guess. Yeah, reactor forge is kind of the best way to generate. Um, it's it's a very double edged card, but the whole deck is double edged. Um, you're, you know, you're you're trying to be uh, fully committed to what you're doing. You're not trying to interact very much with the opponent, so um, Reactor Forge works really well with the breakpoints of the deck itself. If you play a depleted power, you're basically going to be on on odd power. It allows you to play your your east your east annex smuggler, your supplier, um, you know your Rivas on the odd power cards, and and you can use those turns to play your depleted power. Um, otherwise, it it helps you hit all your even cost cards. So it, it kind of very conveniently goes uh, Reactor Forge on two, you know, a Charge Unit on turn three, uh, Divining Rod on turn four. So it's a very sort of predictable sequence, and it, it's very strong in a deck like this, mm-hmm. I think. Yes, and so you think it's because of that it's worth taking the hit of it not being a charge unit? 
Yes, I think so. Um, if you just rely on, you know, other cards, I don't, I don't think the deck is fast enough. Mm-hmm. But Reactor Forge is a way that it makes this deck, you know, be able to do its its thing on turn four, which I don't think realistically there's any other card that you could do with just a single card. Mm-hmm. It requires a lot more commitment to uh, ramp type effects, um, which then diminishes the amount of hits that you have for your divining rod. So I think it's a it's kind of a balance of what cards you're able to play in a deck like this. How many cards can you commit to what you're doing and then how many cards are you can you get a, away with? Uh, so for the cards that you're getting away with to have them in the deck, you really want them to be either very impactful or have a very important role to play. Right. And I and I feel like Dragonforge fits under the same category because that's the card that you're using. It's like your fifth through eighth copy of Divining Rod. But again, it it's also a non-hit for when right. you actually naturally draw a Divining Rod. And so is there... You just is it that important to have in the main deck as compared to say like the Dragon Forge in the market? I mean, obviously in, in the market you do have like a Blade Crafter, um, which is another way to to draw it. But um... yeah, it. I I think I think there's probably you know still tuning to be done with the deck. Mm-hmm. I think uh, folks can play it and then make some some alterations and decisions on that. I think it's worth it myself. It also has some really interesting uh, breakpoint considerations with uh, Talir. So for example, you can attack with Talir, get yourself up to eight power, and then you can dragon forge um, and play the uh, divining rod with that same power uh, because it reduces the cost uh, by one. So it the total cost of playing forge and then getting a divining rod um ends up only being um five uh so three plus five eight so that's a a cool breakpoint i thought with with um with talir it also works like i mentioned with with reva pretty well where you're able to play your charge unit um uh, and tutor for your for the card that you need and like you said divining rod only hits four cards so sometimes it doesn't doesn't work uh there's chances that you Chances is that you may need to play more than one divining rod in a game to ultimately close things out. Um, so I think it ends up being important to be able to get to get that effect. Otherwise, the deck kind of it, it kind of luckluster. It becomes this clunky. Yes, they have charged all your units, but they're quite expensive unless you're able to get a lot of advantage by playing many things at the same turn. It kind of kind of luckluster Mm -hmm. and then my my last question on this deck is you know we've been saying saying the card all nighter a lot i i wonder you know because this deck has very little in the way of um interaction what Mm -hmm. what would you think about like an all nighter instead of the praxis adepts I think if I were to cut a card, it would probably be the Devotee of Sands. Mm-hmm. But I think that All Nighter could be a very great to this deck. Um, it's it's the perfect it, it fits the perfect role in decks like this where you may want to use it for the acceleration, you may want to use it for the, the um, removal. So I think 
that that would be a really great card to to consider. But I think I think I would look to cut the devotee uh, of the sands first before the adept, um, potentially because the adept is another fire unit uh, that can take advantage of something like Caleb. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that's where I would I, I would look uh, to see if I could replace it. Right. Even though you currently have a a two adept four devotee split, you still kind of feel like the adept is important more important in some sense yeah i'm not sure exactly what the right number is for for that split but i think like for example i i think we it could be considered that maybe dragonforge goes down to three cards and then praxis adept goes down up to three as well uh so there might be room to play around with the non divining rod hits numbers in the deck but i think that you could likely just make a, a straight uh, replacement of the four devotee of sands to four four all nighters, and I think that that would also be a, a a nice change to the deck. Cool. So yeah, that um, there we go. We have a a, a cool brew with uh, Talir that I think is doing uh, doing a fair bit with the deck. Um, I think. Um, Talir's, like I said, kind of a cool card because, you know, I don't know if it's like, it's not like a build around card, which a lot of people think of when uh, brewing decks or brewing around cards, but Talir's kind of cool because it's doing a lot. And so you can add it into decks and then figure out like little synergies or little breakpoints like you were describing to, to sort of maximize the card. Yeah. Um, so, do you have any any final thoughts before we close out this episode on Talir? I think it's definitely a cool card, and and um, I think the burden that you put on it at the beginning of the episode uh, is, even though it's very true, I think it it has so many positive effects that I think it it kind of um, it goes ahead of a lot of the other big time unit uh kind of cards that you could be playing so i think it's a it's definitely an exciting one uh within that niche um of big big time units cool so uh i guess that's the that's the end of our show here so once again thanks to all uh, all the patrons of the show at patreon.com slash farming eternal uh where you can sign up join our patreon support the show uh, thank you to D-Dub, John, Demo, Steve Irwin, Cotillion, Loki, Trickster, Mercurial Blue, Abednego, Meagles, Madness, Darth Herman 2, Twin Hex, Jed the Hummer, Raven Dragon, Esrit0215, Sunblaze, Worked on Sun, and Yist Out for uh, your continued support. And uh, for those of you looking for draft-focused uh, episodes, uh, we <laughs> I do plan on getting back to them. Uh, I'm straight has been uh, graciously uh, given his time these last uh, few episodes and our schedules align really well. So these episodes have been easier for me to record and not much has happened in the draft realm for a little while. And I've been really busy with uh, life and work on the farm. So I've been, uh, but uh, in, in the future, I'm hoping to eventually get into a, uh, 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 
on off again schedule with the draft and these constructed episodes because I have been enjoying enjoying these a lot too but uh have not figured out quite how to do that just yet but uh to be continued um cool so uh thanks again for coming on I'm straight and uh have a good night to you and everyone hey thanks for having me uh it was a pleasure to be here <laughs>